When I was in my 30s, I heard a statement that spoke loudly, loudly to the crossroads that often happens at this moment of midlife. And here's the quote as I heard it. When a man turns 30, he realizes that his life isn't working. Now, obviously, I don't think it's just men who have this moment. I think it does capture for all of us, or for many of us, this realization that the plan you've been working, consciously or unconsciously, for the last 10 or 15 years, well, it's sometimes, sometimes often, got you someplace where you didn't expect to be. When you hit your 50s, and I think this is probably a different iteration of midlife, I think 30 is midlife, I think 50 is midlife, um, and I'm 54, so maybe this is why I'm thinking about it, certainly one of the reasons I wrote How to Begin. But when you hit your 50s, I think the question reappears, although perhaps dressed in slightly different raiments. You've climbed your mountain. Now, who do you choose to be beyond that first mountain? What's your legacy mountain? What does the rest of your productive life look like if hitting your 50s is in some way a culmination of a career path? Now, as I've faced into that question and thought about it, I've been sitting with the idea of stepping into elderhood. Now, just to be clear, it's not the same as elderly, elderhood. And I think what that is about is accepting that a certain amount of wisdom has accumulated and that I might be of service by fine-tuning my ambition to be of service and to uplift and challenge and teach others. I mean, this is the archetypal mentor role, you know, from the hero's journey. You know, think Obi-Wan Kenobi. Do you have a mentor, an elder in your life? Or are you perhaps being called, like me, to become one? Welcome to Two Pages with MBS, the podcast where brilliant people read the best two pages from a favorite book, a book that has moved them, a book that has shaped them. You know, when I was at Oxford, I did a course on W.B. Yeats, the famous Irish poet, and I actually traveled to Sligo to see Yeats' country. And I visited his grave, and on his grave there are these lines, cast a cold eye on life, on death, horsemen pass by. Those lines bring to mind Stephen Jenkinson, my partner in conversation today. He's someone I've looked up to as an elder. And he's engaged rudely, briskly, lively with life and with death, having actually worked in what he would call the death trade, counseling dying people and their families. He's an author, he's a sculptor, he's a musician, he's a canoe builder, he's a sage. He's also the award-winning author of one of my favorite books, Die Wise, a book that is well-read and on my shelves. Now, Stephen got his start in the art of storytelling as a young man. He was apprenticed to a master storyteller. So I asked him, why do you write? Inside me, there's a medieval monk. <laughs> uh, I've made peace with this some considerable time ago, but, but this monk every once in a while eschews the world and um, goes raving off into the inner wilderness seeking after a cave or a hovel of some description. That's what writing turns into for me is I, uh, I have an ob- obligation to, you know, to obey the various assemblances that are, that have gathered in, in me over the millennia, I suppose, or in, in for the moment they take this form. Ah, 
I know this, that call from the wilderness, that need to obey various semblances. I think it's proper to understand written a, a written effort as the best that, that your life was capable of condensed to an almost unbearable degree and um, and prone to to disillusion in the act of it being written. Ah, uh, yes, I know this. The working and the reworking to find the essence, to connect the light and the dark. If you're writing to make it the best your life is capable of, I mean, what a phrase. That complexity and density and lucidity is what you're striving for. But perhaps that becomes more possible when you feel your life is on the line. I did an initial book about money and the soul's desires back at the turn of the century. Boy, that sounds like a long time ago now. Right? <laughs> turn of the century. Yeah. And, um, you know, it was, uh, it was all I could manage at the time. And, uh, but I left a lot of terrain ill-considered, mm. let's just say, which is yeah. first book-itis writ large, right? <laughs> for sure, for sure. And then it was, it was 15 years. Uh, I'd come out of the death trade, uh, an unceremonious departure. Mm -hmm. and, um, and then I was, I was very much in the grip of uh, a pulmonary uh, challenge that had every sign of being possibly terminal. Right. And so I was actually facing the real possibility that that particular season, which I remember to be late fall, early winter of 2014, I think it was, uh, that might be my last. And I, I, it literally came to this. So I'm at this point, a husband and a father, although my kids are living elsewhere. And, and I may be dying. And I've made a ruckus around, you know, dying as a kind of profession or if you will and yes. i can imagine the, if this is not too self-congratulating a circumstance in which as i'm dying and once i'm dead that um, people close to me will be obliged to respond to a certain amount of of email about so is there anything else or what else you know what did he leave or you know things yeah. to this effect or did you film him dying or something <laughs> and i thought well what could i do that would somehow let's say, enable people to respond without having to go into horrible degrees of, <coughs> of uh, uh, too much revelation, let's say, too much right, exposure. Right. And so I just started writing stories that I could remember uh, about my time in the death trade as a kind of PS, if you will. Mm. And those stories began to grow a kind of mycelial relationship one to the other. And that mycelium turned out to be the binding agent that produced a book. And that's how nice. Die Wise happened. It literally happened in about six weeks of handwritten um, uh, discipline from about six uh -huh. in the morning to about noon every day without stopping. But it's not a small book. No, no, it's a, it's, it's a tirade. There's no doubt. <laughs> and it's at least two books <laughs> that forgot how to stop. <laughs> I think that's how it began. And retroactively, I thought to myself, well, that seems a proper book now. Yeah. And if that's a proper book, then at least for the purposes of the time I was writing it, I seem to have become a writer. And, and, but I never understand myself that way because I know people who are writers who do yeah. it because they have no choice in the matter. I still have a choice and I'm glad of it. So, so I'm, uh, I'm somebody who stumbles into writing um, without permission. 
<laughs> and uh, and there are some writers who are willing to include me temporarily in their ranks, and I'm very pleased with that. I I understand that. You know, I've written six or seven books, but I've never fully gone. I'm a writer, and uh, I'm actually trying that on as an identity this year. What if I was a writer? What would that mean in terms of right. how I reorient to my work and my world? Stephen, your your new book is called A Generation's Worth. And this idea of worth or worthy feels central to it. Yeah. What does that word mean to you? Well, um, maybe not so much to me, but what's the consequence of employing it beside the word generation? Mm. Uh, because I really thought deeply and hard. I knew that what I was coming up with amounted to an indictment of my generation. I mean, it, it's just straight up. What it, It's also that. There's other things too, but it's inescapable. Right yeah. as as is the indictment inescapable, it's not the whole the only note in the symphony of what my generation has done, but it's certainly there and it and without it everything else is deeply compromised that you'd have to say right so yes so I I put the two words together and I I thought okay you're right the word worth is the root word for worthy, so this takes us out of the marketplace of currency and and mm -hmm. estimated book value, you know, and all that sort of thing. And perhaps puts us in a more fitting direction of, of trying to come to an estimation of what, what the consequences cumulatively might be of the bequest that my generation is foisting upon the generation immediately younger than you. Yes. Say. And so I understood a generation's worth as, as, functioning in two ways. One, as a kind of increment of, of value. You could say a generation's worth is like a, um, a, day's, wor a day's work kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And then the other term was, what is this generation of which I am a reluctant uh, member worth to those mm -hmm. who come after and those who've come before? Mm -hmm. yeah. So it was a kind of prism, if you will, and a kind of litmus paper at the same time. I see that. It feels like that's actually a, a nice segue to talk about what you've chosen to read for us. What, what have you picked? Uh -huh. um, well, this is a, a man who, uh, he's uh, no longer with us, um, dead maybe six or eight years now. Mm. And uh, he, he died, you know, as, as these things go, demographically speaking, young. I think he was <laughs> right. in his 70s. And... Uh, you know, that's lamentable. He won the uh, Nobel Prize for Literature as a kind of late middle-aged man. And he had a remarkable capacity uh, to occupy uh, a public life in Ireland, spanning the course of the re-advent of the Troubles in the, in the 1960s, and, and negotiated in an immensely dignified and skillful and responsible fashion, the obligations of an artist with the obligations of a citizen, mm. the obligations of a, a member of a culture that is not at its best at a given moment, you know, all of those things contending well with him. Is, the man I'm talking about is Seamus Haney. Mm -hmm. And he, he wrote a book about mid-flight in his uh, career called the Haw Lantern, H-A-W, Lantern. Mm. And um, he had just come out of um, a book called um, Station Island, 
which is a remarkable um, meditation on the, the said the medieval spiritual medieval presence in contemporary Irish life of its old voice, its old mm. presence, its Nordic uh, Viking past and various other things. It's it was immensely achieved work and and then this this hall lantern comes some years afterwards and very different orientation as if uh, as i come to investigate it it's it's beginnings he was he was involved in teaching at harvard quite a bit and so he was on the receiving end in the english department of what's come to be known retroactively as the deconstruction movement in in literature and in, particularly in learning in western universities that's right so he was watching and presiding over and to a certain extent subject to the slow disillusion of the notion of received tradition and and the verities of received tradition and mm. and uh, you know he was a master practitioner of being on the receiving end of tradition and right. you know he was watching this being dissolved basically before his eyes as a as a gravitational presence let's call it culturally mm. and so he's he's wondering clearly in this book what there is that was bequeathed to him artistically and literarily what what chance it has of enduring and whether it should as he's acknowledging a lot of the aspects of of a quote unquote provincial culture that needed some modernizing yeah. but not globalizing and they both came in at once in Ireland at the time and right. you can see him contending so so that's the context of the selection and then yeah. the the piece proper he actually was commissioned by the local chapter of Amnesty International mm -hmm. to simply do something for them so yes. it's it's noteworthy that an organization that had that kind of focus yeah deemed him capable and worthy and and a proper person to approach to give voice to some of their basic concerns right mm. so the piece is called um from the republic of conscience and this is very interesting the title i mean are, are, shall we segue into the thing proper now? please yeah I, i'd love to hear it okay so the title before i go and i'll just try to read straight through without any editorial interruptions <laughs> but, okay but let me just linger on the title for a second so it's come from the republic of conscience and it's not clear when you begin with the word from exactly what you're saying about what follows. Yeah. So is the piece from the Republic of Conscience? Yes. Or is he, are you imagining the, the word I, comma, from the Republic of Conscience? I as right. a spokesperson for, you know, it's yeah. just not clear, right? And, and ambiguity, and that, yeah. Yeah, that ambiguity is really a salient feature of this piece because it's uh, as you'll see it's part description it's part allocation it's part invocation it's yeah. part aberration it's part political um um preoccupation it's part spiritual absolution it's well let me not preempt <laughs> anybody else's reaction to it i'll just go ahead and you may have already preempted some of that reaction oh. but i'm uh, i'm excited to hear this so stephen that jenkins reading Seamus Heaney's wonderful book, From the Republic of Conscience. When I landed in the Republic of Conscience, it was so noiseless when the engine stopped 
I could hear a curlew high above the runway. At immigration, the clerk was an old man who produced a wallet from his homespun coat and showed me a photograph of my grandfather. The woman in customs asked me to declare the words of our traditional cures and charms to heal dumbness and avert the evil eye. No porters, no interpreter, no taxi. You carried your own burden and very soon your symptoms of creeping privilege disappeared. Now fog is a dreaded omen there, but lightning spells universal good and parents hang their swaddled infants in trees during thunderstorms. Salt is their precious mineral and seashells are held to the ear during births and funerals. The base of all inks and pigments is seawater. Their sacred symbol is a stylized boat and the sail is an ear and the mast a sloping pen and the hull a mouth shape and the keel an open eye. At their inauguration, public leaders must swear to uphold unwritten law and weep to atone for their presumption to hold office and to affirm their faith that all life sprang from salt in tears which the sky god wept after he dreamt that his solitude was endless. I came back from that frugal republic with my two arms the one length. The customs woman having insisted my allowance was myself. The old man rose and gazed into my face and said that was official recognition that I was now a dual citizen. He therefore desired me when I got home to consider myself a representative and to speak on their behalf in my own tongue. Their embassies, he said, were everywhere, but operated independently, and no ambassador would ever be relieved. Thank you, Stephen. That's beautifully read. Thank you. It's the least you can What's do that? with an accomplishment like that, is do it justice, the sound of it at least. Oh, isn't that, isn't that true? Yeah. Um, you know, fog and lightning. Where's the lightning for you in this poem? Well, he says lightning spells universal good. Now, it's not clear, for example, that everything he's included in the poem, he's somehow advocating. Mm. Inclusion is not the same thing as approval, for, for example, sure. right? You have to acknowledge many things about your own life that you're less than thrilled about or or proud of. But failure to do so would be to exercise a terrible degree of censorship over your own accomplishments, right? So it's the same, I think, here. So he's saying, 
lightning spells universal good. Well, of course, any culture worthy of the word culture understands its own accomplishments to be a universal incarnation of all that is good and just and proper, mm. right? But we know it's in the nature of culture to be actually very specific and local. That's what makes culture something other than a globalized, you know, uh, neoliberal um, corporate entity. Right. And so it's it's not clear that we should say, right then, universal good is enlightening. Mm-hmm. Because he's declaring that in the Republic of Conscience, they hold this very dear. But having acknowledged the limitation, you could imagine, for example, that for me, the lightning follows from this. This is the middle stanza you've asked me about. Yeah. He's saying, well, parents hang their swaddled infants in trees during thunderstorms. But he doesn't say why. Yeah. Which is, which is a beautiful, let's call it gap in the connectivity of the thing. He said, this is what they do. And he's reporting like an anthropologist in, in a fashion without really accounting for it. He's relating it to, thun- to, to lightning as if they're somehow always happening at the same time, but we know they don't. Yeah. Sometimes lightning that has no thunder and vice versa. But um, I suppose it's what fo- immediately follows upon there that, that is for me the anchor of the, the gravitas of this poem, particularly for us yes. who've lived the last two years. And this is this is my curiosity. This is what I meant by where the lightning was, which is sure, what does what what illuminates here. Of course. So yeah. So he says, at their inauguration, public leaders must swear to uphold unwritten law. Let's stop there for a second. Yeah. This is a very compelling detail. Unwritten law. Right. He's very clearly making a distinction between that and codes of legislated conduct and and yep. uh, what's permitted and what's not and i'm reminded of something that uh, bob dylan included in a in a s- story of his a song of his it's it's might be 50 years old now he says to live outside the law you must be honest that's one that of the line. songs this yeah. is an amazing observation about what lawfulness actually requires and fails to require of the citizenry mm-hmm. lawfulness to my mind is principally predicated on obedience, not discernment. Right. Okay, that's the nature of written law. It's very clear if you've, quote, obeyed or not obeyed. But that's Mm. the only standard there is. And we go further and say, there's something about written law that abrogates the responsibilities of fundamental radical citizenship, to my mind. And they're in this area. If you um, assume... I'm sorry? I was just, I'm sorry to interrupt. It just reminds me of a phrase from a writer I love, Peter Block, who says, how do you invite people to take responsibility for their own freedom? And right. in the unwritten law, there is your freedom. And how do, you, how do you rise to it? How do you swear to uphold it? Well, I, my own inclination is to come at it from the other way and wonder about okay. the written law first and its consequences. Mm-hmm. And I think the dilemma with written law is the assumption is, all that's good in the culture exists in the law. Yeah. And so everything not forbade by the law is by definition the right thing to do. Mm. Now, five minutes of examination on the assumption will crumble <laughs> it, hopefully permanently, when you realize, yeah. oh my God, man, for everything that's included in the law, there are, 
let's call it aberrations galore that are not illegal, but not should never be deemed therefore morally defensible or, or practicable Mm -hmm. or responsible. Right. Right. And I'm surrounded by, by so-called neighbors in my part of the world who proceed exactly this way. If it's not against the law, it's okay. Right. Right. And, and, and despoil the, the neighborhood accordingly because it's not against the law. So, so he's talking about unwritten law as a, I think a revivification of the notion of fundamental citizenship responsibility yep. because it requires discernment and translation and, and pondering and, and truing in the verbals in the verb sense of the term, all of those things are. So public leaders must swear to uphold the unwritten law. Good luck with that, of course. <laughs> and the other part, and who wouldn't want to see this in their lifetime and right. weep to atone for their presumption to hold office. Just once you'd like to see somebody up there quivering before the microphone, claiming very clearly and properly that they have no capacity worth talking about given the immensity of what's just happened to them. Yeah. Right. And the expectation piled upon them, but there it is. And then, and this for me is the axis, if you will, that this whole poem swings around. Mm. That the the other obligation public leaders have is to affirm the faith of the people, right. not to lead it, to affirm the faith of the people that all life, all of life sprang from salt, one of the mm. most common minerals going, right? Yeah. Not Nothing special or particular or unique, but immensely life compelling salt is, mm. that all life sprang from salt where? In the ocean? Well, he's telling you where the salt in the ocean actually comes from. He says the salt in tears. Yes. So you're talking about grief here. Right. Which tears? Your tears and mine because we were forced to live through a pandemic? Uh -uh. Mm. He says the salt in tears that were wept by the sky god. Who's he talking about? Don't forget, Mm -hmm. Heaney was a a self-avowed Catholic through his life. Right. Never suggested otherwise. Right. He's talking about Yahweh here. He's talking about the one true God. Mm. He's talking about the onlyness, if you will, of the deity and the divinity that he was on the inheriting end of, culturally speaking. Right. And look at what he's ascribing to that deity. The salt and tears which the sky God wept after he dreamt that his solitude was endless. Mm-hmm. My translation of that last part is he's saying for every God who's been obliged to be a monotheist, right. there is nothing but sorrow as, as a consequence of the kind of austere onlyness and solitude that an only God perpetrates or per, yeah, perpetrates upon him or herself. It's an amazing piece of exegesis <laughs> about monotheism in about right. a line and a half. Yeah. That's the lightning for me. Oh, I love it. Stephen, you you touched on grief. Yeah. How and I feel like I you see this in the poem in its way. How how is grief affirming? That's a great question. I mean, obviously buried in the question is the the hope that it might be. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's yeah. right. So indeed. Well, 
its its affirmation is of a very particularly non-exhorting kind. Mm-hmm. In other words, if there's affirmation in grief, and I'll elaborate on this declaration here, but if there is affirmation in grief, it is so subtle and camouflaged by, by sorrow that it's far from clear that it's there, such that you have to go to immense length to translate grief into a way of living instead of an interruption in your otherwise orderly, regularly Mm. scheduled programming. Mm. Okay. So that with that as the overture, I'm going to suggest to you that what grief is, is the willingness, the very involuntary, even counterintuitive willingness to be had by life. (laughs) Okay. Yes, yeah, so right. here I'm putting a certain emphasis on a certain syllable when I say <laughs> to be had by life. Right. Right. The, uh, what I'm suggesting here is counter to the prevailing winds during the course of your lifetime and mine, the notion that this life is ours to do with as we see fit, mm. the notion that it's a personal possession that there's certain rights inalienable that come with the possession, that there's no sense of accountability that in any way countervails that sense of privilege and possibility and, and, mm. and friggin' sovereignty and, you know, agency and all the other doodah that accompanies the term today. Yeah. All of that has the consequence of leaving grief in the dirt mm. and replacing it ongoingly in the commons with what? grievance instead right so what's the difference then between grief and grievance i suggest to you grievance is a consequence of a presumption of entitlement yes that's unidirectional that the Mm -hmm. all the entitlement goes one way towards me and anything is mine should be mine yes is mine and anything that that mitigates that circumstance is my personal avowed and sworn enemy Mm. And grief, which says, I- I'm I'm just brought to mind the following. It's a true story. So when I'm working in the death trade, I'm working with a dying psychiatrist, which is a potent, bordering <laughs> on calamitous con- uh, combination of attributes. Right? I know way too much about everything. <laughs> but, but not enough to do it well. Right. Right. <laughs> way too much to be ignorant, not enough to be wise. So... <laughs> So this man in mid's tirade, and he's horrifically disfigured by his fear of the imminence of his dying. He makes the following declaration with no hesitation. I have a right, he says, not to suffer. So you just let that linger in the air for a minute. And you, you understand as, one, as a fellow human being that he's pleading to be spared, you know, Jesus-like. You know, take mm. this cup from me. Of course he is. And if he could have said it that way, of course, is the only legitimate response you'd have if you were there sitting where I was. Yeah. But that's not what he said. He said, I have a right, listen to the language, to not suffer. Yeah. I am aggrieved. Yes. So you, you get the difference here between grief, which would be the suffering, mm. and grievance, which is the right to be spared that condition of being a human being, that Mm. those particulars of your human um, 
not entitlement, allotment. That's the word I'm looking for. So there's the difference, I think, functionally speaking, that in, that grievance is a consequence of your sense of rights being abrogated or trampled upon, and grief is the even excludes the acknowledgement that grievance is so misapprehended, but so much a part of the current regime that there's grief mm. about that, but no sense of grievance that it should be otherwise. You know, it's it's, it's an amazingly of... axial understanding grief is. Uh, it, what comes to mind is the uh, the Rilke poem, a man watching and wrestling with the angel and right. to be deeply defeated by ever greater things. Ever greater things. And feel life pressing its thumbs into you is grief and it is life. Yes, it, it is grief and and so it is life. Mm. And this is one of the ways by which you know that you are so deeply, irreconcilably alive, mm. that you have a capacity for grief, not the capacity to endure it, the capacity to practice it. Yeah. Stephen, one of the lines in the first stanza of the poem is, towards the end, it says, you carried your own burden. Right. I'm wondering how you come to identify your burden. Wow. Well, you know, the word burden is a word that appeared very frequently in the death trade when I was working there. Mm. And it took the form of an aversion bordering on a, on a, uh, almost seismic kind of reluctance that people had. And the way it was typically expressed was allegedly positive, And it went like this. <laughs> I want the option of euthanasia. Yes. Understandable. But why would that be? Or more importantly, when would that be? <laughs> and the answer almost universally was when I'm no longer able to get, take care of myself. And my question would be, and why is that the drop dead, excuse the expression, moment that mm. begins to, to consolate the understanding that life is no longer worth living? Right. And their answer was, because I don't want to be a burden to the people around me. <laughs> right. Okay. Now, this is deemed to be an act of love. Mm. Okay. So let me, let me restate the thing from a physiological level or a kinetic, kinesthetic level instead. So imagine you're granted muscle, musculature, as you were. Mm -hmm. Then imagine the best way you came up with to care for your musculature is to ask it to do nothing. What do you assume would be the consequence for your musculature in all a week? Yeah, a withering. <laughs> yes, yeah. if you were if you were bed bound for a week and didn't even sit up straight, yeah. you under you take the point. Okay, so you so you refuse to burden your body by yeah. employing it. And by the mm. same token, you refuse to mobilize your love and other people's love of you in the name of sparing them that exercise of love. Right. And all the while claiming that love is, is, is compelling you and informing you. Right. So, so burden by definition in a culture deeply invested in autonomy and self-mastery and uh, competence mm -hmm. is, is to be avoided at all costs. And so his, his, his way of contending with this in this poem seems to me, he's saying, well, in order to carry your own burden, you have to cop, fess up, if you will, to the <laughs> understanding that there's such a thing 
is there's a certain right. aspect of burden, life burden, which right. has your name on it. Mm -hmm. It's a consequence of childhood experience, the bullshit accidents of birth, um, <laughs> you right. know, the, the ensuing less than perfect, perfect parenting ideas of your parents. And it just goes on. It just goes on and includes yeah. you and produces you and then eclipses you. And so the more sense of burden you have, the more sense of privilege is very close by. And that's the beautiful association he makes in this couplet. He carries your own burden. And very soon, interestingly enough, very soon, your symptoms right. of creeping burden, dis excuse me, creeping privilege yes. disappear. In other words, it's not an act of personal exorcism that you're a white person and that you've, you've suddenly realized that you are the, the pinnacle in the feeding frenzy known as the West and modernity. Right. And you have the lion's share of the burden of every conceivable responsibility of every human travesty known. It's not what it says. It says there's a certain amount of accidents of birth that you're not personally responsible for. Yeah. But if you live them out, you are responsible to them. Right. And retroactively, you earn through uh, actions of public service and the rest, that you earn the privilege that yes. by virtue of the accidents of birth, you're on the re temporary receiving end of. Mm. I think that's in, in what he's writing here, even though this was written in the mid 80s, slightly before exactly. the current rant about privilege and the rest. Is, that's right. Yeah. Stephen, how do you decide where to put your time? You know, you, you, it feels like you have a lot. You're a teacher, you have a school, you're a writer, you're a musician, you're a podcast guest. Right. <laughs> How do you decide what to say yes to? Mm. Don't forget farmer. Farmer's in there. And a farmer, that's very true. Right. I, I, I left out everything. Yes. <laughs> I left out a husband, right. father, all of that. So I, I merely touched on a few things. Sure. Citizen. Yeah. Um, how do you decide? Well, Fortunately, all the decisions one has to make, a good number of them are foreclosed upon by necessity. So you can go through mm. the, 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 let's say, the appearance of deciding, but it's really acquiescing <laughs> to the givens, right? <laughs> like, yeah. you, can't, you can't fire me, I quit. It's that, it's that order of, <laughs> right, right. of urgency. So, so one of the beautiful life lessons that have come to me as a consequence of farming for 20 years is that... The farming life carries along a seasonal um, sequence of affirmations and obligations. Mm. These are non-negotiable. If you let yourself in to be uh, responsible for the lives of, um, of animals on your farm, for example, there's no day off. There's no, I don't feel like it. There's yeah. no debate about the relative philosophical merits of having done so. I mean, debate it all you want, but feed the animals <laughs> nonetheless. Right. See, and then you work backwards. Where's the money for the feed going to come from? And, and so there's mm -hmm. necessities that begin to domino, right? And these necessities, you could, you could come to them as an infringement upon your pristine personal freedom, or yeah. you could understand it. Oh my God, you've been granted a life in a way that you would never have had the good sense to ask for. 
See? And in that sense, it's a bit like a monastery, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, from what little I can, I can judge from the outside, that you, you retreat from the world, let's say, mm. only to submit yourself to a degree of ordering and scrutiny <laughs> and frank obedience to a power right. greater than you that easily eclipses anything the world would have asked of you. This is, an ama- this is exactly what farming is. You submit <laughs> yourself to an, a notion of the greater good that you had no understanding of when you said yes. Yeah. In fact, it's not even clear you said yes to most of it. <laughs> so this is all to yeah. say in answer to your really well-imagined question that, um, that the beautiful discipline, the kind of remarkable disciplined inquiry of farming is readily translatable to other aspects of life. But instead mm-hmm. of thinking about the growing season, for example, you could think about the season of a culture, the culture that you're in. You could think of it as the season of the political cycle that you're in. And in yeah. due course, you begin to try to translate the kind of uh, regime of obligations that ensue from these sometimes cruel, sometimes complementary accidents that gather around the happenstance called you're alive now. I mean, you and I were both born to a troubled time. This is non-negotiable. What is negotiable is and so. Right. Right? Okay. So the and so, we could pretend that we get to choose. Well, there Mm. are a certain range of choices, yes, that you more or less are obliged to choose. But the obligation to choose at all is probably not a choice. Right. It's probably a condition of sentience. And the beautiful thing about sentience is it absolves you of the meager exercise of choice or self-mastery and asks instead of your willingness to translate whatever you're personally capable of into something that serves the greater good. You carried your burden and very soon your symptoms of creeping privilege disappeared. Yes, and he says at the end of the poem, and my arms got shorter <laughs> and they and they became I became more symmetrical because my arms were the same length, he says, as a result of carrying my own bags. I love that. Yeah. I love that. Um, Stephen, I love how you brought us back round to, to monasteries and you started by talking about you know, an inner monk inside you. Yeah. Um, perhaps as a final question, what needs to be said that hasn't yet been said in this conversation? <laughs> We haven't even begun. We've cleared our throats. I know, I know, I know that's true. (laughs) Yeah, we've cleared our throats. That's all we've done and said said hello, basically, Um, (laughs) which is not a bad beginning. I mean, this is a very slow, elaborate, and highly stylized way that strangers used to be able to um, be with each other. Mm. And I held out hope in the early days of COVID-19 that there would be enough strangeness between us that would be reinstated that Mm. could bring out the best in our sense of profound etiquette. I was really hoping for that. Strangely Mm. enough, I've been proven uh, a fool by virtue of that hope, but I I haven't abandoned it entirely. So, okay. So then if I take your question at face value and show you the regard that a host is due, what would it be? Well, there's a detail in the in the poem that I'd like to maybe uh, say Please. goodbye to each other with, and it's this. 
At immigration, the clerk was an old man. Let's just stop there. It's a wonderful conjuring because I do remember the first time I flew to Wales. Yes. And this is exactly the case. There was an old guy in a cardigan leaning against a pillar. Okay. That's what that was yeah. customs. Right. And you kind of gathered around him, those of you who just got off the little plane. And he said, and he would say, right then, who's first? You know, it was this kind of, it was so informal. It was, you thought to yourself, <laughs> there's nothing of a national security aspect that's at stake here. Right. Clearly, there's no need of security enforcement branch because why? Because there's security. That's why. Right. So it was an old man who produced a wallet from his homespun coat and showed me a photograph of my grandfather. Very peculiar, parabolic yeah. really in its consequence. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the things he may be finding a way to wonder out loud about is something like this. You know, when truly and properly in the presence of an old man, an accomplished, esteemed, old man, you are in the presence of every old man your culture has had the capacity to produce. And so there's a resemblance between this slouching old man in a cardigan at customs and your own grandfather, mm. which is when you don't have the accidents of birth to lay at the feet of your parents and blame them and castigate them and impugn them for the shortcomings, which became you. When that's, when that's temporarily taken from you in a fit of real conscience, you realize that your principal spiritual affinity is not to your parents. Let them off the meat hook for the incompleteness with which they brought you into this world and understand that your real affinity skips a generation. Mm. Always has, and in a cultured place, always will. That, yeah. Such that your grandparents, with no particular vested interest in how you come out are much more capable of driving your inner life mm. towards a sense of the common good than your parents were ever capable of when they had so much skin in the game. There's something of this that I think lingers in. He, he showed me, this customs guy showed me a photograph of my own grandfather. Yeah. And it doesn't tell you why. It doesn't tell yeah. you to what end. It just says, you see, you are not leaving the old behind in your whirlwind tour of your little life. In a real culture, they're there before you get somewhere. They're waiting for you. In a sense, you could say the old people are your future, mm. at least as much as they are your past. So right now, in both my countries, Canada and Australia, it's election time. Now, I don't envy politicians. You know, they have so many masters. There's so many things pulling them this way and that. And I guess that you only really rise to the top in politics through a degree of Machiavellian ruthlessness. There is a sense that you're selling something to get the power that you need. I mean, power corrupts, etc., etc. And it feels, because I'm exposed to this in two countries right now, that campaigning just means that transparent hunger for power is just all the more obvious. I mean, campaigns seem to be 40% bribes to the electorate, 40% disparagement of the opposition, 
and 40% self-aggrandizing. And I know that means 120%. Like a politician, I am promising more than I can actually deliver. That moment when Stephen calls us forward to the unwritten law, the notion of fundamental citizenship responsibilities, of accepting the burden that you know, you know that you're not really capable and perhaps not worthy. And that's the very reason you're willing to step up, that sense of humility. I mean, there's so much to say here. I think this, this humility to know the best of yourself and your own flaws and accept them as you know, both of these things, their flaws and, and your greatness, as the whole of who you are, it's that mix. And of course, and this is important to me, this is why I look up to Stephen, the courage to take on something that matters and to be ambitious for the world and to seek to serve it. Uh, two recommendations that flow nicely from this conversation with Stephen. Um, a recent one with Eric Zimmer, um, who is a podcast host himself, Two Wolves, talking about the internal conflicts of our lives. He is such a thoughtful man. I, I, truly, I truly love my conversation with him. Um, you know, he's somebody I'm hoping to connect with outside the podcasting world just so I can build a friendship with. And in fact, I would say that's true about the other interview. Um, this is part of the joy for me for doing this podcast. Uh, Stephen D'Souza, How to Be and Not Be Yourself is the name of that interview. Also, so smart, so wise, so nuanced in the conversations. Both of these were um, nourishing and kind of inspiring conversations for me. I hope you find that way too. Um, if you want more Stephen, and I hope you do, um, Stephen uh, he has a website. It's orphanwisdom.com. Orphanwisdom, O-R-P-H-A-N-W-I-S-D-O-M.com. Um, you can access his books there. You can find out information about the retreats that he holds. They've been on hold for the last few years because of COVID, of course, but they may be coming back. And I know that he and his band have just put together some music and a film of the creating of this music. It's called The Dead Starling Sessions. Not totally sure why, but um, that hasn't quite come out when I'm recording this, but it looks intriguing. And I hope you'll check it out when the time comes. Um, Please do pass along the interview. If you liked it, send it to somebody. If you didn't like it, tell me. <laughs> um, if you really liked it and you're enjoying the podcast, please do give it a review. I know it's a bit kind of needy continuing to ask for that, but it's actually the way people start to find the podcast. Um, thank you. You're awesome. You're doing great. <laughs>